Welcome to another Doc 2 Podcast Alliance special. We'll shortly hear a series of interviews that Gene Riddler from the Staggering Stories podcast conducted with a couple of interruptions from myself, Adam J. Purcell, at the Doc 2 Appreciation Society's Time 5 convention as held on the 30th October 2011 at Riverside Studios in London. The interviews are with Richard Franklin, Captain Mike Yates from the Pertwee era, Gareth David Lloyd, Torturous Yanto Jones, Louise Page, the costume designer during the Tenant era, Andrew Beach, curator of the Doctor Experience, and finally, Paul Darrow, probably best known as Avon from Blake 7, and Tekka from Doctor Who's Time Lash. So, without further ado, here they are. Well, this is Adam and Jean from Staggering Stories, and we have with us the wonderful Mr. Richard Franklin. Where's he? Where is he? <laughs> yeah. Where are we? Where are we? Yeah. Where, where, where are we? We're Time 5, a Dwazi yeah, event. Indeed. Um, now, I understand you have a book coming out shortly. I have, indeed. It's uh, going to be published by Phantom Films, mm-hmm. and it's called The Killing Stone. Lovely. And there has been a, C, a double CD out uh, for some time, but it only contains rather less than half the actual book. Um, so the book is going to be a different read altogether. So if, and if, if you've got the CD, you still need to buy it. No, you the do. Book. I mean, that's, not a, that's not a sales pitch, but yeah. it, uh, you, the, the book is definitely a read, a leisurely read. And what's the substance of the book? Is it a fiction? Is Paper. it an autobiography or fictional book? It's what happened to uh, Captain Mike Yates when he left the Planet of the Spiders. Ah. Because, as you know, he was very sad to be leaving. It was a very sad mm. day. Mm. And in fact, I wasn't the only person who was leaving. The whole team yeah. that in the Pertwee era was mm. dissipating at that yes. time as well. Yeah. Um, but it mixes uh, fiction and fact. Oh. So I think that's where it's quite an interesting um, story and an interesting concept, rather, that mm. when you've been on a television series for a long time, um, the personality and the character of the actor actually... The real person actually gets written into and becomes part of the actual television character. How long did you play your character for? It was over a period of four years. So, did you find writing this um, brought back a lot of memories of your time on the programme? Oh, it did, yes. And when the character in my book is feeling nostalgic and quite sad and keen to get back into Doctor Who and into Mm -hmm. action, uh, that was actually the same feelings that Richard Franklin had okay. at the same time. Would you write an autobiography? It's semi-autobiographical, but I wouldn't say it's autobiographical because, I mean, it's obviously only certain things that I touch on. I mean, the actual location is uh, Wensleydale, the Yorkshire Dales, yes. and that is where my home was. Oh, nice. And so there is, there is quite a lot of me in it. On the New Who, Unit has appeared a few times. Yes. Would you ever like Captain Yates to appear? I would very much like Captain Yates to appear in the new mm. series of Doctor Who. He is ready, able and willing <laughs> and fit to fight any monster. So if there's any producer living, 
living, <laughs> listening. <laughs> I think yeah. one of two of them actually do. Yeah. What, what yeah. rank would you like to have been to promote? General, to? surely. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a modest sort of person. I'm quite prepared to be a captain, but I think probably be quite good if I were either a uh, field marshal um, or uh, maybe I'd actually left the army and I was black rod in the House of Lords. But that's the sort of job that a top soldier would get yes. on retirement before going into the grave. <laughs> the new who is somewhat different to the old or the classic who, as it's yes. called, in terms of the length of the stories, etc. Do you, obviously being in the originals, you probably prefer that, but do you think that the new who still allows the programmes to be as full as the originals did over a joint time? Yeah, I take you up on one point. I, I wouldn't obviously prefer the old necessarily. I'm open, open-minded about that. But um, I think myself that the producers and writers have done a very, very good job on the new Who because they have brought in as much as possible of the essential Who, you know, TARDIS and all the rest of it. Um, and um, it would have been a, a terrible shame to have jettisoned the basic sort of premise of Doctor Who. Uh, but they haven't. They brought it all in, but they brought it up to date for a modern generation. Time moves very fast, and you couldn't... I mean, and although the new Who fans are increasingly loving the old, traditional, classic Doctor Who... Um, uh, I think it's the same as the old classic Doctor Who people are liking the new. Oh, they are first cousins and it works really well. Um, you asked me another question and I can't remember what it was. Neither can I. <laughs> yes, it's a Short, long time ago. Short-term but, memory, yeah. always yeah. the first to go. <laughs> I, absolutely. Too much waffle. That's my, always my problem. Well, I think that, that would be it because we've got people chomping a bit behind us. Photos. Let so, them chomp. Oh, no, we would yeah. thank you very much indeed for no, your time, Mr. Franklin. And we are with Gareth here, who some of you will know as Yanto. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Hello. What have you been doing since unfortunate demise of Yanto? <laughs> I've been doing a bit of Warehouse 13 oh, for yes. the Sci-Fi Channel, Red Faction for the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, wow. I've nearly finished uh, the new album with Blue Gillespie, the band that I'm in. Uh, that's out next year, early next year, Seven Rages of Man. Did you enjoy doing Warehouse 13? Is it as much fun as it seems? It's, br- it's brilliant. A real uh, uh, show that doesn't take itself too seriously. It's great. And you got to spend a lot of time with... Uh, now, what was her character? HG. HG. Yeah, yeah. HG Wells. Jamie Murray, yeah. Ah. Uh, is it true that there's a rumour going around that they're doing a new series of Torchwood audio plays but set before Yanto's demise? They're out. They're out. There's, yeah, there were three plays, and the, I, sh- I did them in. Uh, I recorded them in LA at the same time they they were filming Miracle Day, and uh, they were on BBC Four last. The, the summer just gone. Oh, mm. We must have missed those listeners. Tune in, and we'll find them for you. <laughs> CD, I believe. <laughs> yeah. They might be on CD. Yeah. What's your next big project that's coming up? Um, I'm waiting on a few auditions. Um, I'm, I'm hoping they may turn Warehouse 13 into its own spin-off, the HG Wells spin-off. Um, but up until March, really, I'm, I'm, I'm chock a block of the band uh, promoting and touring eventually. Go so. on, give a quick plug. Where are you touring? Uh, well, we're going to be starting in Cardiff. Um, oh, but I, I will plug my webs- the, web- the website for the band, which is uh, www.bluegillespie.co.uk. Lovely. 
That's blue, blue the colour, and Gillespie as in dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. Dizzy Gillespie, yes, definitely. Do you enjoy doing the conventions? I do. I, it's, it's great to, uh, to, to to meet fans firsthand and you know get get, get a firsthand um, reaction to to your work, and especially when it's when the reaction is so positive, it's very flattering, and uh, I, I enjoy them. A lot. Last time we saw you was at SFX weekend and you were ostracised to the bar while England were trying to thrash <laughs> Wales at the uh, rugby. Yes. Were you supporting New Zealand in the final, given what happened between France and Wales? <laughs> um, I've, got, I've got to be honest, I was, uh, I was hoping New Zealand would, would demolish uh, France before the game, but the French came out and they, 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 they took it to them and they, they worked so hard that but, but by the end of it I was, I was rooting for the the French and you know being a northern hemisphere team I, I really should have been rooting for them in the first place but, but the, 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 the semi-final was, was, was a sore one to get over yes true <laughs> sorry, sorry listeners rugby <laughs> um, just so I think any questions I don't know uh, how do you feel about the reaction that uh, you've had since your character's killed every time to get Yanto back alive in some fashion yeah, there's been a lot of appealing. I mean, personally, as an actor uh, who craves variety, yeah. I, 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 want, I, want, I just want my career to, to yeah, dig up and yeah. I want to play as many different roles as possible. Um, but I, I'll always love to revisit uh, Yanto, and I'm really flattered the fans have gone to so much effort to, to, to try and resurrect him. And, and who knows, uh, one day. But... Uh, um, I think to bring him back too quickly would sort of cheapen the drama that was created with, with Children of Earth. Did the degree of Yanto sneak into the character in Warehouse 13? Because they're kind of both Batman to the lead character. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that's why I was cast. I mean, I, 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 I didn't have to audition for that role, which, which is oh. nice. It was just, it was just uh, uh, offered to me. And uh, I think it's because... Um, they wanted a Yanto-esque element to, to walk on, but saying that he was also very different. He's 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 he's, uh, he's a lot less guarded, and he's got a lot less demons uh, than, than Yanto. And um, but but a great character, and I hope he, I hope he gets a chance to, to, to flourish in a spin-off. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much indeed. Hello, this is Adam and Jean from Staggering Stories, and we're here with Louise Page. Now, some of you may not know Louise Page by name, but you'll know her work if you are a lover of the Doctor Number 10 and any of the new Who, as Louise is the costume designer. Louise, when you come to designing a costume for Doctor Who, do you work entirely from a remit or do you take suggestions from the actors? How is your approach? No, I mean, with all uh, costumes on the series, we always have a tone meeting to discuss the script and the tone of the story first. And obviously a lot of clues come from the script and from any descriptions that are in the story about the character. And then after that, it's normally character-driven. So there'll be images. In my case, you know, uh, Russell T. Davis was the showrunner. And mostly it would come from Russell and uh, his concept of what he was trying to do. 
uh, or if there was a colour scheme involved, we'd discuss that. Or obviously, if it was a period thing, then it would be to do with what period we're doing, etc., etc. So it would start there with research or with shopping. Uh, obviously, the casting is always quite late. So when an actor comes on board, often they didn't even know what the story was about, uh, and they may not have even read the whole script. Uh, and I would be telling them about their character, and we would shop with that in mind. Uh, and I mean, obviously, a char- you know, somebody might say, I can't wear trousers, they look terrible on me. And I'll say, well, actually, we did think a trouser suit would be good, but obviously, you know, I would change it if I thought, yes, this isn't going to work. Then obviously we would change things as we went along. When you design a costume, obviously there's the look of it is important, mm. but do you have to consider how the costume is going to be used in the programme for the materials that make definitely, it up? Definitely, definitely. I mean, and also remember, particularly with something like Doctor Who, there are lots of stunts involved which involve wire work. So often you might make three of the same costume, two for the actor, maybe a clean one and a dirty one, and then another one that's a stunt one, or it might be a wire work one that you can put holes in the side seams or adjust or it would be for example the 10th Doctor David Tennant his suit we'd have one that was one chest size up to accommodate padding to accommodate all these other things that you need to do and of course if someone's going in a river you need to know you know I mean in some episodes like with the water of Mars for instance I had five outfits for every person because we had so much water involved I did have a question there in my head and it's gone completely. In terms of, you're obviously given an idea for the the costume that is there. How much of it is your free range and how much it is dictated by the producer, the director, the writer? Well, it's very much a collaborative effort really. So it's all about, as I said, firstly to do with the script and the image I have uh, that jumps off the page at me initially and then discussion and whether we think that's going to work and normally it then goes from there and obviously it's always a work in progress really which has been your most favourite costume to do and which has been your most challenging costume to do (laughs) probably the same answer for both actually which is obviously the 10th Doctor costume that I did for David Den obviously it's the most iconic of the Doctor Who costumes I did I did you know 45 episodes over a four year period it's a lot of costumes and a lot of monsters as well but I mean obviously the 10th Doctor is my Doctor so for fondness reasons it's you know important and obviously also I guess uh, looking back it was the one that also would have the most pressure attached to it because everybody's expecting something uh, one of my favourite costumes other than that I loved the Kylie costume the Aspid Peth costume for the Titanic that was fun to do again it was very quick and you know she was lovely to dress um, I enjoyed the Miss Hartigan costume the red dress in The Next Doctor uh, and and uh, the David Morrissey costume that uh, for the next Doctor as well. Um, challenging things like Davros. Obviously, you've got things where he might have to open the jacket up, and it's how that's going to happen with prosthetic hands. Uh, they're all challenging in different ways, you know, for different reasons, really. Whether it be because the person's going to end up in flames or in a river, or whether they're going to be wired and hang from the ceiling, go upside down. There's always, then, you know, in Doctor Who, there are very few costumes, even the most contemporary and the most straightforward, even if someone's in jeans and a t shirt, there's probably a reason why there could be a problem with it. Is there a costume that you've done that you weren't satisfied with or you disliked doing? even though it came out wonderful at the end? Uh, I disliked doing the scarecrows immensely uh, and actually they worked very well 
in the episode but yeah at the time the scarecrows really annoyed me although a lot of it was made on them really you know we dyed the fabric and had it already a lot of it was made on them but I yeah I wasn't over fond of them although they they work very well in the episode um there probably are other things and I can't think right now what but you know often there are things which you think oh actually you know maybe that wasn't the best top or you know there's always things you think you could do differently uh, the thing that gives you the biggest buzz is if I've done something and I haven't necessarily although we talked with the art department about the set often you don't see the set you might see a model but you don't see it completed and painted until the day that you work and it's a real buzz when you get on the set and you've got your actor or your actress there in an outfit and then you turn around and realise that you've done little accessories on an actress and that they've accentuated all the accessories on the set in the same colour and you think, wow, that's amazing. It's a buzz because actually it's completely unplanned, but it works really well. And, you know, I mean, I think that's partly also because Edward Thomas, who was designing Doctor Who at the time, and I were quite in tune with each other. And obviously we had the same thought processes, you know, within what we were doing. Is there much collaboration between you as the um, costume and the department that deals with the sets? Or are you both independent from each other till you come together? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, obviously everybody starts together at the tone meeting. So the scripts, the producers, the makeup, the costume, the art department, the special effects, prosthetics, everybody's around that table. Everybody's been given the same information. And with page turning, you know, sometimes for seven hours, talking through every single thing on every single page. So it gives you a lot of time for somebody to say, hang on, I'm doing this. What are you thinking of doing? And therefore, at a later date, if there was something I was quizzing, like if it might be a wallpaper, and I think, hmm, is this going to work against the wallpaper? I would ring up the art department and say, have you got a sample of the wallpaper? Um, if we had badges or logos, I'd get the art department to design the logo for me and we'd embroider it. So, yes, there's definitely a cross uh, thing with that and also with the makeup people as well. You know, often they say, well, what's their hair going to be like? You know, what's their wig going to Have they got a wig? You know, have you done a hat for them? Uh, that, you know, it's all very well for to design a hairstyle and then I say, actually, I've got a hat covering their whole head. <laughs> Is there at any point where you've actually had to say, no, I can't? produce that or I can't do that where they've come up with a concept for costume or monster and it's just been unfeasible well normally it's budget really that stops that so uh, it's normally not because you can't do it it's because you don't have the financial resources or the time to do it so yes of course uh, there's always things but you try and do the best you can and you also always you know, the brief is to fulfil as much of their vision as possible. So, you know, if you can't do something because you don't have the money or you don't have the time, then you work a way around it of saying, well, we could do this, which is cheaper. It may not be exactly what you want, but obviously that we can do. And that's, you know, really part of the brief. Of the three or five versions of the costume that survive filming, mm. what happens to them at the end of their use on the programme? Well, a lot of the uh, costumes on Doctor Who at the moment are in the exhibition in Olympia in London. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of them have been in exhibitions over the whole time we've been filming. Uh, and there's still a big store of costumes which um, are archived and are owned by BBC Worldwide for use for exhibition purposes. Is there any of the costumes that you would have liked to have kept for yourself? Um, probably a Kylie costume 
probably a doctor costume as well, yes. But I didn't. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Uh, we have with us Andrew Beach, a once leading light in the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, and who has more recently worked on a Doctor Who exhibition. Experience. Experience, even. What's your role been on the, working on the Doctor Who experience? What's your involvement? I'm BBC Worldwide's Doctor Who Artifacts Manager, which means that I'm basically in charge of sourcing uh, and uh, managing the restoration of various props and costumes that are actually being displayed at the experience. Was it easy to get all of them together in one place? No. <laughs> Where was the most obscure location you found something? Well, clearly the artefacts that um, derive from the more recent series of Doctor Who were all BBC-owned and uh, largely based down in part where the studios are. Um, the more difficult-to-source items were the ones from the classic series where it was a question of actually I tracking down and recovering elements from the original uh, BBC exhibitions that have been running since about 1974-1975 and of course the um, free flow area of the experience has been supplemented by one or two items from private collections which are there on loan. I was going to say, in terms of the private collections, have you agreed a period for the loan or is it just on good, good nature? Uh, well basically uh, uh, an undertaking of the size and scope of the experience, obviously, is very much a long-term thing and involves quite a lot of financial input from the point of view of BBC Worldwide to actually put the thing on, and therefore it's not a particularly good idea to actually have items on a short-term basis because you could be left with a rather embarrassing gap in your <laughs> exhibition. So all the privately owned items which are on loan have been loaned for the term of the exhibition. In terms of the items from the classic period, was there much restoration required on site pieces and do they need special handling because they are some of them are very, very old? Some of the particularly old um, artefacts did actually require quite a lot of um, refurbishment and also care in terms of both the handling and the transport. I mean, the oldest um, surviving artefact we have in the exhibition there is the Ice Warrior, dating from 1967 where in actual fact the only surviving original screen-used part of that um, costume is the main tortoise shell, as it were, the the torso, which actually is Bernard Breslau's from Varga, uh, back in the Ice Warriors. It's actually got his name inscribed indelibly in it. But the other items of the costume, the arms, legs and the head, which were part fibreglass and part latex, had of course perished over the years. It's a combination of... um, as soon as an actor wears a costume and perspires into it, perspiration is corrosive of latex. The heat of the studio lights and the sheer passage of time means that these things tend to dry out and, and start to crumble and, and, and disintegrate. So basically, on that occasion, we had to completely recreate all the limbs and the head. Obviously, this is your professional job and you're approaching it as a professional, but you're also a fan. Was there a part you were absolutely pleased to get your hand on, that, that little item that you were... And what was it? I'm not sure there's a specific item within the exhibition that I'm particularly thrilled to have there, but what I am so pleased about is that it's always a little bit of a a difficult tension to balance. The the perfectionism wanting to get something looking absolutely spot on and as it was on the screen, as opposed to the actual cost of doing that. Usually in the past there have been quite a lot of um, shortcuts that have had to be made and... and, um, I think one of the things I'm most proud of with this exhibition is that the usual tension you have between the amount of money available to actually 
restore something vis-a-vis the perfectionism, which I think is absolutely right. I think we've got a pretty good balance there in that um, we have been able to really employ people who, while being professionals in their field, also have a love for the show as well. Therefore, they've gone that extra mile to make sure that the restoration has been done to a very, very high standard indeed. And I think it's probably the most accurately restored exhibition that there has ever been. Is there one piece you would have liked to have put into the exhibition that you just couldn't get hold of, doesn't exist anymore, and it wasn't, not morally, but it wasn't the right thing to recreate it? Well, in actual fact, the, one of the major selling points of the whole um, free flow exhibition aspect of the experience has been, to the extent possible, we want to use the original genuine screen used items because I think it's very important to the audience that they want to see the thing that really was on the screen. So, first of all, we're trying to rely on that. That said, when you've got something which you've got half of it and the other half not, then of course it makes sense to try and recreate the whole, even though some of it is renovated. In terms of creating things from scratch, it's really something which, at the moment, we haven't had the need to do because we've got so many other things to display at the moment. But I think in the longer term, it will be nice thematically, to the extent that we have rather a nice array of Cyberman heads right from the beginning right the way through to the current version. Uh, and we have a number of TARDIS interiors and a couple of the exteriors as well. It might be quite fun at some point if there is sufficient scope in terms of the length that the exhibition runs and indeed the space to do it to maybe actually have representations of each of those because the audience very often like to see the evolution of something about how it changed over the years. Certainly one of the surprise hits of the exhibition has been the 1980s console route. A lot of people are quite surprised to discover that the uh, 1983 TARDIS console does still exist, it is the original one, and uh, subject to a little bit of refurbishment with one or two of the bits of wiring and lights and switches on the panels, I'd say that's pretty much 95% the original artifact. We've been to the exhibition a couple of times, several times, and, several <laughs> times, and we found it very fascinating and it is a lovely throw, flow through. Is there any particular tableau or part of the exhibition that you are particularly proud of? Um, the, you're absolutely right in saying that obviously I, I come from a fan background as so many other people do I cannot deny that as and when we had finally finished dressing the um, exhibition part of the experience just before it opened when I actually saw the array of all the Doctor's costumes there for the first time ever I, I cannot deny that there was a little tear in my eye Well thank you very much indeed for your time and thank you for giving us a lovely exhibition You're very welcome so, this is Jean and Adam from Staggering Stories, and we're here with the wonderful Mr. Paul Darrow. As opposed to as opposed treacherous, to the, treacherous, <laughs> treacherous <laughs> evil Paul Darrow yeah. from Lake Seven and Time right, Lash. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're involved in a new project which is going out onto the internet, similar to the podcasts, The mm. Minister of Charles. Mm, that's right. Mm. Would you like to tell us a little bit about it? Yes, it's, uh, it came out of the blue something I was asked what I'd like to do. I read the script, looked at the cast, which is mm. sensational. Uh, Jenny Agatha, Paul McGann, except uh, Sylvester, uh, Sylvester McCoy, that is, and so on. I mean, not a bad cast, is it? And uh, lovely people uh, were doing it, and I very much enjoyed doing it. And it's, I play the baddie, I'm afraid. <laughs> yes, I, I've heard episode one, and mm. your character very much is looking after himself. Yes, you could put it that way, yes. You seem to play the villains more often than the heroes. Well, I never think of them as villains, you see. I just think of them as uh, part of the self-preservation society. Mm. 
In doing the Minister of Chance, quite often with um, audio, you do it separately. But this has been done in a new way, so it's almost like a film technique. Were you all together when yes. you recorded it? Yes. So it was much more of an acting experience. Yes, yes, yeah, that was uh, part of the enjoyment. Yes. So. Which do you prefer, the TV work or the audio work? The TV gives more money. <laughs> I do uh, occasional episodes of Law and Order UK ah, by yeah. their judge. Um, four have already gone out, and uh, the fifth one I think is uh, in the next series. And you also do quite a lot of theatre work as well. well I have done, yes, but I'm getting on a bit now. Yeah. <laughs> Which is your favourite medium to work in? Film. <laughs> Are you better? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and could you tell us a bit about your time on Doctor Who Time last? Do you have any memories of that time? Yes, nightmares, yes. No, no, <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Um, I got accused of sending it up a bit, but... <laughs> so you got uh, the commentary, as I recall. They forgave me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I just want to say, I, I saw you actually quite a few years back now uh, on a Terry Pratchett stage oh. play, Guards, Guards. Yes, that's it right. It was wonderful. Um, Captain Vimes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Did you do anything more of that ilk? Will there be any more of that? Well, it was very expensive to put on, apparently, oh, and uh, we toured it for quite yeah. a long time. Yeah, sort of Brighton, I think. Oh, yeah. did you? Yeah. yeah, and uh, I asked Terry if he approved, and he just said... Well, the fans approve. That's that's what's important. It was, it was great. Um, because it was a bit frightening. Huh? Because, of course, um, Pratchett fans are quite demanding. Huh? And on the opening night, uh, I thought, you know, if they don't like my interpretation, <laughs> we're down the tubes. Mm. But, thank the Lord, they did. And mm. Terry appreciated it. Yeah. Sir Terry, as he is. Oh, indeed, indeed. Maybe there's some hope that you might appear in a, a TV adaptation. They're, they're doing a series of them, aren't they? If they need an older man, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Time. You're very thank welcome. You. Thank you. Bless you both. And that's it, I'm afraid. A big thank you to all our interviewees, the Dwaz team, and Seb from Doctor Online, who helped organise these interviews. So, thanks for listening, and goodbye for now. Oh.